Astronomy AstronomyCast, episode 468, Simulations for Fun and Science. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, the Director of Technology and Citizen Science at the Astronomical Society of the Pacific and the Director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. So before we get any deeper into this episode, we just want to give a quick shout out to what is going to become sort of an unfolding story. And that is to our friends at Oceanside Photo and Telescope, who uh, just sent the two of us a brand new 70 millimeter refracting refractor refracting telescopes with cool CCD sensors to do astrophotography. And we are going to sort of learn, upgrade our game in visual and astrophotography and bring you guys along with it. And a huge, huge thank you to our friends at Oceanside Photo and Telescope. Podcast list, you can't see it, but Pamela just made a little heart sign. So big thanks to OPT, who I think that like the biggest telescope company or telescope retailer in the world, I think. So yeah, they're a great company. They've been sort of great to work with for years, I think decades, we've been, you know, talking to them. And they're an utterly honest company, which is why I've recommended them so many times. They have more than once prevented me from buying something more expensive than I needed to and been like, no, 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 you actually want this other thing that costs less. And that earns my coming back over and over and over forever. And so I have. Yeah. So they haven't sponsored the show. They've just put a powerful telescope in our hands. And, uh, you know, we want to give them a big thank you. And of course, it's going to turn into more work because now we're going to be going and having to like learn how to do this and make videos about it. And, you know, so you're learning. Yeah, I'm going back to my roots. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm learning. All right, well, let's get on with this week's show. So astronomers depend on simulations to study the universe from relatively straightforward orbital simulations to vast simulations that try to recreate the large scale structure of the universe from the Big Bang onwards. Today, we're going to talk about some of the simulations as well as tools you can use to simulate the universe for fun and science. All right, Pamela, so let's talk about some universe simulations. How, you know, should we talk about the history first about this idea where you as a professional astronomer can make observations, but then you have to predict, you have to try to figure out if, you know, the theories match the observations that you've made. So how do simulations from the perspective of an astronomer, how do those two kind of come together? Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And initially, simulations were simply lots and lots of pieces of paper strung together. Organized by computers, in other words, human beings who... Right. And so it goes back to the idea that folks like Chandrasekhar went through and figured out what are all of the equations that allow us to balance out the internal dynamics of a star. And once we have all of those equations, we have the ability to go through layer by layer by layer and simulate a star. And this is actually probably one of the first big simulations that almost every astronomy major is required to write, where you're taking the equations, you're balancing the star, you're figuring out at what level do you have radiation transfer, at what layer does convection kick in. And it kind of is miserable to do that by hand. 
And so we've been looking to find ways to simulate this in computers since before computers had anything more advanced than punch cards. And beyond just simulating stars, it's the how do we go through and figure out orbital perturbations to figure out what happens to comets over time, to figure out, given the fullness of time, how do the orbits of the planets change? Yes, you can go through and you can repeat the calculations over and over and over on paper. Kepler did this. But if you like yourself, then you figure out how to program a computer. Right. And let a computer do the heavy lifting. The one made of silicon, not necessarily the human being. Very true. Um, but, but so... Uh, and I think one of the things that's really important about this, right, is this idea that if you like you have a theory and that theory makes predictions, but you have lots of historical observations that you've made through the past, like climate simulations, things like that, or well, climate, you know, you've got climate data, and then you develop a theory and a simulation, you've programmed a computer that does it, and then it runs the math and tries to mimic the past data and then make predictions about the future, right? And it's not just going from past data to match current to match future. We do that with climate, but with galaxy simulations, half the fun is saying, hey, there's this crazy distorted set of galaxies in the process of colliding. So look at the mice, look at the antenna. Let's see if we can, within the software, collide galaxies and figure out what the initial conditions were that led to these amazing splayed out splatterings of stars and gas. And how do we get the dark matter content correct and interacting correctly so that the collision starts as early as we see it starting on the sky? And it's from going through and trying to reproduce these in-progress collisions that we're able to build up a complete understanding of how collisions occur. And the most powerful computers in the world are used for this, like simulating supernova explosions. They use some of the most powerful computers to just try and understand what's going on in there. And globular clusters is actually one of the places where all of that started. Back in graduate school, for me, so back in the early 2000s, late 1990s, a group of scientists trying to understand all of the orbital dynamics inside of globular clusters had to develop the first ever petaflop supercomputer in order to get all of the different interactions going correctly. And this has grown up into being the dragon globular cluster simulations being done at the Max Planck Institute. So these folks are still going along, still figuring out how to evolve a million gravitationally interacting stars and try and understand how is it that you have new binaries forming? How is it that you have these triple star interactions that fling a star outwards and one of the coolest results is, again, over the fullness of time, if you watch a globular cluster longer than humanity has existed, they actually pulsate like a heartbeat if the simulations have it correct. And of course, we can't wait longer than human beings have existed. So having a simulation, so a petaflop computer is the best that we can do. Yes. 
And some of the ones that I find most fascinating, I've done a bit of writing about this is just these simulations of the entire universe, where they start from like shortly after the cosmic microwave background radiation is released to the first stars to the first proto galaxies to the first galaxies to the cosmic web at the largest scale that we have today and the level that the simulation can now predict what the universe looks like is just amazing. And what's so cool about these is watching how they've changed over time, trying to understand how you go from an essentially smooth distribution of matter in the dark ages of the universe to having the completely lumpy bumpy Swiss cheese of modern day cosmology requires getting all sorts of different things interacting from figuring out how does different dark matter interact or not interact? How does the temperature, the velocity of the particles right after the cosmic microwave background is released affect things? You have to factor in all of these different effects and it's difficult. So we talk about how many particles there are. We talk about, is it gas? Is it all these different ways of approximating things. And we've gone from basically a thousand by a thousand particle cube to million by a million to ever, ever larger simulations spanning more fine grained periods of time. So it's no longer this seed represents what will become a galaxy to it's this seed represents a star cluster to this represents a star. And we can see the universe in our simulations turn on, light up, collapse down, and evolve into what we see. Yeah. The people listening to the podcast didn't see it, but I was sort of putting up videos from this illustrious simulation showing what those simulations look like. And it's just, it's so impressive just to see how well and how detailed and how accurate these simulations are. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Love Pop. Unlock special pricing for five or more cards and get free shipping on any order by going to lovepop.com slash astronomy. So I'm kind of struggling with exactly what to say because I'm giving a bunch of these cards as part of my Christmas gifts this year. And if I say too much, people who are listening who are also personal friends will totally know what I'm getting them. So, so I have to be vague and say that these are the cards that are more than meets the eye. You pull them out of the envelope and it's like, wow, this is a really thick card. And then you open them up and pop, three-dimensional paper sculpture pops out to greet you. They come in a whole bunch of different options, different color combinations, different seasonal choices. They have Christmas cards. They have random cards. They have all the awesome you could want in paper form. So go to lovepop.com slash astronomy. Take a look at stuff, some of which I'm buying for Christmas gifts, and pick out your favorite cards. And like I said, unlock special pricing for five or more cards and get free shipping on any order by going to lovepop.com slash astronomy. Thanks. Another simulation that I think is pretty great is people have simulated sort of what the future is going to look like, you know, let's take the future of the Milky Way and its interactions with the Andromeda galaxy, because they're going to be colliding in a few billion years. And here again, it starts to be 
just how big is the dark matter halos between our two galaxies because it's those dark matter halos that will hit first and start triggering the interactions and then once the interactions are triggered how fast does dust and gas plunge into the center of our respective galaxies and turn on those black holes and we won't be here our planet will be a crispy critter but it's awesome to think about essentially what will this fireworks display look like. Absolutely. Now let's talk about some stuff that people can use on their own if they want to kind of get into this and be able to start playing around. What are some tools that they can use to actually run some simulations? Well, I think the one that people play with the most that in some ways is perhaps the most satisfying is Universe Sandbox. And it's available for Steam. It's in the Humble Bundle, which is a way of buying things and also giving back, paying it forward through your purchase. And the Universe Sandbox allows you to play with gravity, to drop in new masses. It runs on all the major platforms, Windows, Mac, Linux. And... It's just a nice, easygoing, kind of pretty simulation that lets you play with the universe. And who doesn't want to play with the universe? They're adding stuff to it all the time. And sort of a recent alpha that I was playing around with, they had added tidal heating efforts and Roche limits and things like that. So you could have the moon be going around the earth and you could move it closer and closer and closer until the tidal force, it crossed the Roche limit and it tore the moon apart into this ring. And then the chunks of this moon ring come raining down on earth. We've for some of our videos, we've done things like taken the sun and turned it into smaller stars and had the stars orbit around each other. And they're adding new stuff all the time to the game they've added you know whenever something new is discovered like i'm sure I, have, I haven't checked but i'm sure they've added the interstellar asteroid Oumuamua into it already is the kind of thing that they do and so as soon as new objects new planetary objects are figured out new stars are figured out new galaxies are discovered they'll drop them into the simulation spacecraft and then you can do stuff there's a great simulation you can do where you put two baseballs a couple of meters apart from each other but with nothing else in the universe. And you can just watch the gravity of them bring them together over the course of a couple of months and they bonk into each other because their gravity is pulling them together. And if you're more interested in just exploring our own reality without like tearing things apart, which we all know is fabulous. If you'd rather stick to the actual universe, there's Celestia, Stellarium, and Worldwide Telescope, all of which have different data layers you can turn on and off, all of which allow you to essentially zoom around to different perspectives within the universe and get in and really see what's out there. But what I find really cool is a lot of the physics that goes into creating things like Space Engine, Universe Sandbox, all of these different, let's go in and mess with the solar system simulations. The same physics we need to do for that is the same physics that goes into video games like Portal. And it turns out that they're hiring people who have degrees in physics, in astrophysics, to go work at Pixar and figure out how to get the hair correct in the animations, to go work at EA and figure out 
how to get it so that you actually fall through the portals just right and then tweak reality a little bit so you don't accidentally become a harmonic oscillator between two layers because your velocity balanced out too perfectly. Well, we talked about Universe Sandbox, and they've got someone on staff who is a physicist, an astrophysicist by training, and her job is to provide the calculations and to make sure that the way that they're simulating this stuff, you know, matches reality to the best our pathetic computers can handle it. And for a long time, one of the leads over at Pixar was Chris Ford, who worked on their simulations for their animations. And he's another PhD physicist who took all of this knowledge and turned it into figuring out how to get clothing to move right, how to get hair to move right. And all of these problems are just different versions of the same physics that happens in outer space. It's just written at a different scale. Yeah, and and I think, you know, we did a whole episode just about some of the space video games that we like to play. And, you know, we always talk about the Kerbal Space Program is this great simulation. It's got some flaws. It doesn't handle Lagrange points correctly. The, the sort of the, the amount, the E, it's a lot easier to get into space from Kerbin than it is in the real world, although people have made mods that make it more matching reality. But, and I, you know, I say this every time we talk about this game, right? I have learned more about the way orbital mechanics works, the way spaceflight works from playing that game for just a few hours than all of the years of me trying, you know, reporting on space. Because it's one thing to like, oh yeah, and they had a Centaur upper stage and released the satellite into a geosynchronous transfer orbit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's one thing. But to actually make your spacecraft get into a geosynchronous transfer orbit and realize that how you needed to build that second stage to be able to do it is just absolutely vital. So it's amazing to see this. They're coming back around that the simulations make for fun games and learning to play these fun games are making people who are more prepared as scientists to be able to then go into the sciences and help push the science further. It's a really beautiful kind of connection. And what's cool is it starts to allow you to really answer questions like what would happen if a black hole slowly started to invade our solar system? And science fiction has often taken on these kinds of questions and have oversimplified them, have made it seem like everything would go to hell in a handbasket. But the reality is you can get a tiny black hole fairly far in before we start feeling its effects because the effects add up over time and it takes time to see, oh, oh, my planet is no longer where it should be. Uh, So I'd like to talk about a bit about where maybe simulations can go a little, not awry, but they can cause controversy. And climate change is one of these examples where, you know, a tremendous amount of resources are being put into trying to develop simulations for what the climate's going to be doing over time. And you've got all these past observations. And so then people are now creating simulations to try and predict where the climate is going to be going next. And yet the models that they're developing don't necessarily match What causes this uncertainty? Well, so first of all, you have to make approximations if you ever want your software to finish running. And that is a fundamental problem. It used to be that when we were simulating stars, we essentially did a 1D simulation where we did a single cut 
from the core of a star out to its surface along a straight line and ignored everything going on outside of that line through the star. From there, we moved on to doing two-dimensional simulations where you start to see more of how the convection affects things. You start to get more effects from pockets of material, but the balloon you have in your 2D slice is going to be very different from the sphere of material you have moving in a 3D reality. And so as our simulations become more and more able to handle the real world as our processors get faster and our algorithms get better, but more because our processors get faster, we're able to get a more realistic view on things, but it's still not perfect. It's still not accurate because we don't know exactly how to model convection. This is like one of the most ridiculous things that the way oil burbles and moves in your frying pan, the way your lava lamp works, the detailed math of that, we're still trying to figure out how to do that precisely. And stars are a lot more complicated than lava lamps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so we have to make all of these approximations. And with our planet, it gets even harder because cities, for instance, affect weather because they have a different heat capacity, a different way of storing heat in their asphalt and their cement. And how cities grow affects the weather as it passes over those cities. So you go back in time and you figure out what model matched what happened in the 50s. Okay, that's fine, except now everything has changed. And so we're dealing with this urban sprawl, cities changing, forest coverage, plant coverage, land capacity, amount of water in the land. All of these variables are hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think that we... I mean, we talked about this in a previous episode about how actually short-range weather forecasting has gotten surprisingly accurate. Like, if the weather says that next week on Thursday it's going to be raining, used to be that was ridiculous. And now you kind of can rely on it. You know, don't plan your vacation next week because it could be raining. And so that is the power of these supercomputers that have been simulating these weather in the short term and the medium term. But in the long term, you've just got so many variables that can just take things into other directions. And so you just sort of put together all of the different simulations all at the same time and try to sort of find out what's the average that it's all telling you. And this is part of why we can't, for instance, say exactly what the orbit of an asteroid is going to be over more than a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of years. The simple variations in soil color combined with rotation and interaction with sunlight is going to change that asteroid's orbit in ways we're still figuring out and can't fully simulate. And so all of these things introduce uncertainty, they introduce error, and in our climate models, we're getting better, but we're not getting perfect, and it turns out that the world is falling to bits in a handbasket faster than we had anticipated, in part because, well we're affecting our environment faster than we anticipated. And then there's all sorts of different things we're just discovering, like heat sources under the Arctic ice shield that we didn't know about. And those are 
you sometimes you don't know your unknowns and that makes it hard right the classic donald rumsfeld advice yes sage words he says ironically um but this prediction about the after movements i just want to go back and talk about that a bit again because it's one of those situations where the universe feels for a certain extent, once you understand the math, the whole thing works like clockwork. If you get Newton's gravitational equations down, you should be able to predict the movements of all of these bodies for hundreds, thousands, millions of years. But the reality is that even our most powerful computers can only simulate the movements of the planets within the solar system to a certain point and then it all just kind of goes i don't know <laughs> and there's so many silly little things that can be of huge impact so for instance the wrong coronal mass ejection hitting a near passing asteroid at just the right albedo ratio might create a minor deflection of the object that over a thousand years puts it in a completely different place. Or YORP. YORP. You know, the, I don't even know all the parts of it, but the fact that asteroids, as they rotate and they emit oh, yeah, yeah, radiation, yeah. it causes a tiny yes. thrust. I'm sure someone listening to this, Sandy Springman is probably going, YORP is, and I'll look it up while you talk about YORP. But the, you know, the implications that it has on those simulations, right? So, yes. And this is one of those things where we don't necessarily know where on an asteroid surface it's going to suddenly decide, hey, I've got volatiles. I shall turn them into a jet. And like I said, it's that fine-grained interaction between different soil colors can make all the difference in the world. This is why painting asteroids allows us to move them. Not that we've done that yet, but we have in simulations. Exactly. And you've know, done in simulations. I'm sure it's, you know, it'll be easy to do. But the point being that these asteroids are tumbling in ways that are really hard to predict. And the asteroids interact with each other and with other bodies in the solar system then in ways which are really hard to predict. And your simulation runs out of steam beyond a certain point trying to look into the future. So what are the limits of simulation? How far can we go and what can we not simulate? The inside of a black hole. Yeah. So if you want to know what we can't do, that's one of those things we can't do. We can simulate what happened prior to the release of the cosmic microwave background, but we can't yet test those simulations necessarily. So there's lots of random holes where we kind of get stuck. But yeah, it's so hard to say what we can't do because someone's going to prove me wrong with an unpublished dissertation as soon as I say anything other than black hole. Other than black holes, but you feel pretty confident. I feel totally confident. Well, you know what's funny? Uh, this is time for a brief rabbit hole, which is that even gravitational waves can't show us what's going on inside the event horizon of a black hole. Yeah, it's totally true. Yeah, it is forever beyond our reach. And that's okay. Yarkovsky O'Keefe Radzivsky Paddock Effect. Yorp. It's named after the four researchers who developed parts of it. So that's what Yorp means. Okay. But let's give some people some recommendations and for some software to buy or some gifts to give people to get them simulating. So what would you, let's give some people some recommendations. What would you suggest they go out and buy? 
So as a starting point, Universe Sandbox and Kerbal Space. Just start with those two. If you want to start with free, another good one to explore existing spacecraft is NASA Eyes, so eyes.nasa.gov, and to explore the actual universe is Worldwide Telescope and then Celestia or Stellarium. And there's another game called Space Engine, which I know a lot of people want me to check out, which I haven't actually tried. But I'm sure people are going to be like, yeah, Space Engine is cool. The other thing is Stellarium, which is great to kind of simulate sort of what the sky is going to look like in your area. And then you can drive that forward to be able to see what it's going to look like in the future. And there's one more thing. If you go to, oh, Transit Finder, I think it's www dot transit dash finder dot com. But anyway, do search for transit finder and it will simulate when the International Space Station is going to pass in front of the moon or the sun within a certain range of your house and the exact date and time that you can do it. So you can then go at that exact time, go to that location, look up and you will see the International Space Station fly right in front of the moon perfectly and it just seemed like a wizard, which is awesome. I've got one coming up on the 4th, I think, of December that's going to be about 30 kilometers from my house. Are you going to try and photograph that? I may try, yeah. I may try to go. I don't know if I'm going to try and photograph it, although... Video it. That would be easier. Or just go out and enjoy it. Cool. Well, thanks, Pamela. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com, tweet us at astronomycast, like us on Facebook, or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 1.30 p.m. Pacific, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, or 20.30 GMT. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at cosmoquest.org or on our YouTube page. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. If you would like to listen to the full unedited episode, including the live viewers' questions and answers, you can subscribe to astronomycast.com slash feed slash full raw. Our music is provided by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Chad Weber. This episode of Astronomy Cast was made possible thanks to donations by people like you. Please give by going to patreon.com slash astronomycast.